right, that's the foghorn. That must mean it is time for the Cavus Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog, the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Sorello. Coming up, the blockbuster announcement this week of a new multinational deal for Australia to buy and build nuclear-powered attack submarines caught much of the naval world by surprise. And there are many more questions than answers at this point. We'll be joined by our colleague, Vago Maradian, for an extended discussion of some of the many aspects of this deal, which involves and affects Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and most importantly, China. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. As we said, the heads of the Australian, British, and U.S. governments on September 15th announced the new AUKUS security partnership between the three countries, with the first major project to develop a nuclear-powered attack submarine program for Australia. The announcement effectively cancels the huge submarine program Australia had with France's naval group to build 12 attack-class subs in Australia based on a French design, an effort expected to cost more than $90 billion Australian, $70 billion U.S., over 25 years. In addition to the new submarine program, the AUKUS effort aims to include multiple efforts, including cyber, artificial intelligence, and undersea capabilities. The move was widely condemned by China and by France, whose foreign minister called the cancellation a stab in the back. We'll discuss this in more detail in a few moments. The U.S. carrier Ronald Reagan has moved out of the Central Command operating area and chopped back to the U.S. 7th Fleet. USNI News reported September 16th. The Japan-based Reagan arrived in the CENTCOM operating area in late June to provide air cover for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Also on September 16th, the USS Essex Amphibious Ready Group with the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit entered the Persian Gulf to bolster the U.S. presence in the area. The amphibious ships Pearl Harbor and Portland round out the Essex group. The U.S. revealed on September 13th that a four-ship Chinese naval group operated within the U.S. exclusive economic zone near Alaska's Aleutian Islands on August 30th, shadowed by the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Berthoff. The group, the U.S. said, did not enter U.S. territorial waters. The Chinese group was led by the big Type 055 cruiser destroyer Nanchang, China's largest and most sophisticated surface combatant, accompanied by the destroyer Guiyang, a sophisticated intelligence ship, and a supply ship. The group left its northern China bases around August 21st and returned around September 12th. Chinese media noted the cruise was, quote, a display of far sea capabilities or countermeasure against U.S. provocation. Two Iranian Navy ships that ventured around Africa and into the Baltic Sea to visit Russia returned to the Bandar Abbas naval base on September 12th. The crews of the base ship Makran and frigate Sahan that began in late May was widely reported to have been intended to deliver a cargo of high-speed attack boats and other weapons to Venezuela. But the ships never crossed the Atlantic and instead arrived in St. Petersburg in late July to attend Russian Navy days. Whatever the true purpose, it is perhaps the longest ever deployment by the Navy of revolutionary Iran. In aviation news, the Boeing-owned MQ-25 Stingray unmanned test aircraft on September 14th carried out its first aerial refueling 
of an F-35C Joint Strike Fighter. The UAV is being developed as a carrier-based tanker, able to extend the range of aircraft like the F-35 and F-18 Super Hornets. Earlier aero refuelings from the MQ-25 have been carried out with a Super Hornet and an E-2D Advanced Hawkeye aircraft. And that's a quick look at Naval News this week. All right, let's move on to the discussion segment of the podcast, and let's dive into um, this new enhanced trilateral security partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States that we mentioned at the top of the show. As promised, we are joined in this segment by Vago Muradian. Um, Chris, Vago, I'm going to play moderator here because you guys bring a lot of experience in these types of deals and in, in these types of discussions. Um, there are a lot of angles to this. We've heard from a lot of different people. Um, some things are known, but there are a lot of unknowns to this. And so I wanna dive into this in four areas. I wanna hear your observations and questions when it comes to the specific platform deal, uh, what the Australians decided by moving off the French, heading to the United Kingdom and the United States um, for their submarine. I wanna know what you think this means to the Atlantic Alliance what this means from a deterrence standpoint, and then at the end, what do you think happens next? So uh, Chris, let, let's uh, start with you. From a deal standpoint, what's the significance uh, of this from a purely platform standpoint? Why would the Australians do this? Well, it's, I mean, this is a big, big deal. This is, this is cataclysmic, really, that the U.S. is going to transfer nuclear submarine technology to anybody. Uh, we, we have had a deal with the Brits um, since really the late 50s with uh, Britain. And it, is, it has evolved over the years. The initial British uh, submarine was a U.S. Um, plant, a reactor plant, but the current ships are not. Uh, we have collaborated with them on, for example, on the Vanguard, uh, on the uh, Dreadnought class uh, uh, strategic replacement program. Um, we've collaborated with them on the missile compartment, but not the power plant. Um, and we've cooperated with no one else outside of the Brits on, on this. It's a technology that we guard jealously. Interestingly enough, the Russians, the Soviets have had the same viewpoint. Uh, for all of the exporting of technology they've done over many decades, they have the, the most restrictive by far has been on submarine nuclear submarine technology, only India uh, has been part of it, and that was uh, there was a lease submarine to India. And now, within, uh, then they turned it in, got a got a newer war. Now they've re now they've returned that, really to get experience operating nuclear submarines. It was not a nuclear submarine force. So the fact that we're transferring this technology and supporting this technology for someone to build it in their country is just a huge change in the history of nuclear power propulsion. Uh, that alone makes it interesting from the australian point of view there's not a strong history of success with australia building ships in australia um the the existing class the collins class uh now 20 years old or the program's over 20 years old uh, was fraught with any number of problems the uh the the destroyers they just built the air warfare just the destroyers started off terribly they've they've had they've they just don't have a good track response. And of course, technology transfer is a major aspect of most, most programs these days, especially in Australia. Um, now they're gonna build a nuclear submarine. This is the most complex 
technically demanding platform you could possibly build, including aircraft. Um, this is from the from the, the steel and welding requirements to stability inside the ship to be able to operate and effectively continue to operate in a volatile, dangerous environment, um, and then put nuclear power into it for a, an establishment that has no experience with it. This is a huge, huge leap forward um, that will involve major to major infrastructure, major training of people, um, major support all the way around. This is a big deal. And of course, cost um, already the, the, the French program, the, the, the um, SEA C-1000 program to build the, uh, the attack submarines from Naval Group, Francis Naval Group, was already experiencing major cost growth. Um, up, 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 up already, you know, I think 12% just in the last two years. Um, when you talk nuclear, you know, you can sort of put a zero, add a zero to the end of anything you're talking about and start, start, start from there. I mean, if you want to, you want to talk spending money, this is a big deal. So uh, I think Australia is going to have to consider this politically enormous, um, aspects to this. This is not just a submarine program. This is a huge leap for them. Vago, you have been on the phone, um, you know, working the phones, talking to folks here in the United States, um, as well as in the United Kingdom um, and, and elsewhere, um, you, you know, trying to learn as much as you can about this and, and build the context for the piece that you put out on the Defense and Aerospace Report. And then as part of the conversation that you had today with uh, the Washington Roundtable, um, before I ask you about what this means for the Alliance, um, is there anything that you want to add from the, you, you know, the, the deal itself or the platform itself? Is this worth the squeeze for Australia to, to go through all these hoops to go nuclear versus just to continue with the French deal? Um, I, I think for, first, it's an honor uh, to be on the program. I think you guys do an absolute terrific uh, job. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm truly flattered to be here and having this uh, conversation uh, with, with, uh, with the both of you. First part of this is I couldn't agree more with uh, what Chris has been saying about some of the challenges associated uh, with um, a, a kind of procurement program, and especially because of the strictures that the Australian government has put on it. Uh, ultimately, and a fundamental concern that has come up, whether I've talked to British friends of mine, uh, has been uh, a little bit of the reflection of the concern I think we're seeing from Naval Group, which is, hey, you guys are asking to build stuff. Our reputation is on the line at the end of the day when you guys do this stuff. We can debate whether or not, uh, you know, Naval Group underbid uh, the, the contract. You know, the, the number of folks told me that the Japanese bid a much higher price that gave folks a sticker shock that may have been more accurate. At, at the end of the day, I think that the recognition was the Australian requirement is for a nuclear submarine. The transit distances are so long, um, the, the complexity of uh, the, the mission, the electronic uh, gathering, uh, especially in places uh, that, are, that are choke points that are likely to be patrolled, really do augur for a nuclear uh, submarine. The whole issue there, of course, was uh, British nuclear testing in Australia and the contamination that that caused that is you know, at the heart of not just uh, Australian, but also New Zealand and, and indeed uh, regional concerns about those nuclear tests over, over many decades. Um, so I think that there is a recognition that a nuclear uh, submarine is the, is the right answer here at the end of the day. But th this is, uh, you know, 
Um, very, very complicated. It is going to take decades to, uh, you know, I mean, I want to say a decade, I mean, I, a longer to create the sort of maintenance cultures uh, you need for submarines, uh, the operational culture uh, you need. I mean, I think you can't underestimate the operational excellence that the United States Navy has brought to this, the Royal Navy has brought to this, and indeed the French navies have, have bought to these as, as sort of first rung nuclear uh, operators. Uh, they just have not, you know, we've not, you know, the United States obviously lost two boats during the Cold War. Russians have lost a number of boats, including last year uh, with uh, the Laura, uh, Laura Shark uh, uh, boat that, um, you know, caught fire and, and, and sadly killed, uh, some senior figures in the Russian submarine force. Uh, and our, our thoughts are obviously with their, with their families. Uh, but ultimately this is the, the requirement is for a nuclear submarine. The question is how do we get there at this point? And so one of the reasons I forwarded the notion of at least license producing, uh, or at least basing it on the astute is, I think if we go for a scratch built program for eight boats, it's going to be even more profound in terms of cost. Whereas if you look at astute at this point, I think it's running about a billion and a half pounds. That's about $2 billion a boat. Um, it's, they're smaller. Uh, they're not long-range strike boats like what the Virginia, especially the Block Fives, uh, have evolved into, uh, and and I think you know have a very strong special operations capability, which also might be attractive for how Australians are going to be using them. So let's switch then to the alliance. Let's move away from the hardware and talk about um, the alliance. The United States has worked very hard to get our European allies uh, interested and engaged in the Indo-Pacific. Um, seemingly having luck by uh, getting the uh, UK and France to do more. Um, what does this do to the to the alliance? I mean, the, the French are pissed, right? They're they're not happy about this, and you get the sense that it's not just um, you know it's not just posturing that they are really upset. Uh, Vago, I'll go to you. Um, what does this mean for what we were trying to build in the Indo Pacific, and and can it be repaired? Um, I, I think it's going to, it will be repaired. Um, France is uh, among the most, you know, as we've discussed on this program, Chris, you, uh, both Chris's, right, we've talked about the strategic nature of France. Um, I mean, I think what really is burning France in particular, uh, so I think strategic interest is going to, is going to, you know, in a month or so when things calm back down, I think we go back to having a, a very, very productive uh, relationship. I think from a French perspective, we the United States did not tell them what was going on. And the United States didn't tell them what's going on because the United States view was that it's for Australia to tell France that it's canceling this program. Uh, we can all ask what the rush was, right? Because we knew that these conversations with the United States and its partners uh, began, um, you know, depending on how you look at it, either at the behest of the Australians uh, and the Australians may have gone to the Brits and then the Brits pulled us in. But whatever it is, we've been discussing this in a highly classified manner since March. Um, there have been a lot of interactions with the French and this has not come up. And so the reason the French are, uh, you know, France is a very, very, like any great power, is a very proud nation. And the thing that France really doesn't abide is being made look to look foolish. And in the end of this, that's what this did. 
Um, we can argue the Australians should have contacted the French and let them know. Apparently, you know, in, in June, uh, Chris uh, uh, Cavus, you know, um, my understanding is that the Australians had told the French, hey, you know, we'll let you know by September. Well, alas, it's September and they did let them know. The trouble is they let them know 24 hours after they announced the U.S. president announces a deal uh, with the United Kingdom and, and France. I think I think in the main, France remains an engaged Pacific power. I think the sooner people in Washington recognize the instrumental nature of France, the better, because France gets it. France understands the challenge from China, uh, understands the need to be present in the region, um, and moreover, is the voice that within the confines of the European Union will make the case for other allies and partners for them to be engaged and be very circumspect in their future uh, trade, strategic, industrial, and other elements of the relations, because France is the one nation that has a tendency of looking at these things holistically. So I think that it heals. Um, I think that there are things that we should be doing to make this a little bit easier, including acknowledging we could have done a better job. Uh, just like I think France should learn lessons and how Naval Group may have prosecuted uh, the campaign, um, right? I mean, I think that this was more about Naval Group than being angry with France, uh, because, which remains an important ally and partner. But I think we should also do things to acknowledge France's central role. And that's one of the reasons why I've uh, argued that there should be a, a Western Pacific South task group that the French should lead. Um, transfer one of their big deck amphibs, the Mistral class ships, the three of us have enormous respect for the capabilities of that ship, enormous respect for the capabilities of the French Navy, put a destroyer or two and an extra frigate and a nuclear attack submarine out there. It can really serve as the nucleus of a European task group in the region uh, around which other forces can coalesce, whether it's for exercising or fawn ops or anything else. And so I believe that that focus remains and I think that pragmatically, the EU also sees the focus. The, the challenge is China is a massive trade partner. I think that at the end of it, what people do not understand about this deal is China is Australia's number one trading partner. The messaging of this is the most powerful element of it, that a nation that is intimately dependent on China and has been punished by China on beef, on mining, on wine, has decided to take this step to get closer to its most important strategic partner, the United States, and by extension, the United Kingdom, and to break a deal with France to do that. So this is the confluence of a lot of different elements that came together in which Australia concluded that going nuclear, despite historic concerns about nuclear, um, it cannot be understated. There were a lot of very particular drivers of this and unfortunately, the fears about concerns about China strategically coincided, unfortunately, with frustration with Naval Group, which is, which is why we ended up where we are. I think that Europe understands the dynamic and the importance. But does this, uh, Chris, I think what you're asking more broadly, into this narrative of strategic autonomy, I believe that there are those in Europe that will continue to drive this forward, including the French president, for... Uh, I think understandable reasons. France and Europe understand they are entirely too dependent on the United States to do anything from lift to space capabilities to communications to strike. Uh, and, you know, but in order for them to achieve this vision is going to take a lot more than briefing slides. It's going to take 
concerted national effort and investment. And, and there, there I'm not as convinced, you know, there I think the rhetoric is a little bit ahead of the reality uh, of where uh, Europe is uh, in, in terms of uh, developing those capabilities. I think the Biden administration has really, as I think Jim Townsend uh, on our podcast yesterday said, uh, really need to focus on messaging correctly with our European allies and partners, because at this point, it, it seems like they're an afterthought or we're sticking it to them consistently, And I, it, which is the reason why some leading French figures are even saying these guys are, you know, the Biden administration is just like the Trump administration, you know, equally America first. And, and I think that that's really antithetical to American interests when you're trying to make the case we're the ally and partner of choice. So if I, if I come in, so the, the, you know, there are so many levels to this, it really isn't funny. And, and, and talking about any, any one means you're not talking about the other 57. Um, there are all these inter, interrelationships with the Atlantic Alliance, with NATO, with uh, the countries we're already talking about. But ultimately, this one is all about, ultimately, it's about China. And I've been reading, you know, some things are going, this is likely to heighten tensions with China. No, folks, you got it the wrong way. China, by its inexorable maritime growth and outward pushing and pressure on everybody anywhere, is heightening tensions all over the world. And this is not about heightening tensions with China. This is a reaction to China relentlessly heightening tensions with everyone else. What do you do? And particularly in the naval world, we have seen um, just in the past year a pretty impressive demonstration of intent, carrying out a pretty impressive demonstration of intent by both the UK and France. Uh, and of course, we're always supporting this, but other nations and Australia and Canada, uh, people increasing naval deployments in the area. China, um, France just completed a very interesting deployment of a nuclear submarine out to the middle of the Pacific, um, very unusual did it with our support, couldn't have done it without us, but that was that was a statement of intent. Their annual training crews with an assault ship and a frigate was beefed up and to become a good bit more than that. Both of those moves totally annoyed the Chinese. There was much squawking in the Chinese-directed media about this, and France doesn't need to be this, and France doesn't need to come out here, and they don't belong here and all this stuff. Well, actually, France has about, there's about 2 million people in French territory around France, and they have a frigate permanently stationed out there. So yeah, the French are out there. You may not like it, but they are. But they don't usually do that kind of presence. The Brits with the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group 21, who are out there right now, operating in the Western Pacific um, between Japan and Korea. This has been coming for years. They've been planning this for years. It's not the kind of thing they're going to be able to sustain every year. But this is a major effort. It's an international effort. It's a Dutch frigate as part of that. Um, the Germans are out there right now. So you're seeing all these nominally out of area nations that are putting a presence out in the Western Pacific in the South China Sea, that all of which is completely annoying the Chinese who are trying to pretend and trying to de facto declare that the South China Sea is their territory and they act like it's their territory and they put naval tails, ships, uh, shadowing every foreign ship that their foreign naval ship that comes in the area uh, as if it's theirs. It's not theirs. It's a huge area. It's an it's a it's an international area. 
but they are trying to act like it's theirs. That's the sort of relentless pressure that is leading somebody like Australia to conclude that despite all the trade uh, aspects which Vago correctly identified, despite all the pain that's going to come from China saying now you haven't heard the last of this, you know, you're, you're going to pay for this to Australia in terms of trade. Despite all that, the immense expense and effort of acquiring and fielding nuclear submarines is in the long run worth it. That's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure for a long time had to be applied to, to the Australians for them to come to this deal where they really just realized that the submarine program they had put in motion several years ago to replace their existing subs was simply based on, on continuing a capability that was not as, not as great as they wanted. The nuclear sub is the entirely new levels of capability. So in the end, this is, this is where they've come down on. But this is all about the Chinese. Push, 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 push. And people are definitely pushing back. And in the big picture, you know, if you, if you, break, you put all these pieces together, it's a pretty, pretty interesting picture of what's going on right now. Even if the rhetoric isn't, isn't so direct. But the naval actions, more than anything else, are speaking to, to China. Um, watch out. The problem, of course, here, are we going to wind up provoking China to do something before their window of opportunity, so to speak, starts to close? And that's a risk. So in the minute or so that we have left, I'll ask both of you, uh, you know, almost lightning round, like what needs to happen in the next two or three months? And then what needs to happen in the next year or so to speed this process up or ensure that this goes the way that the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia want it to go. Chris, I'll start with you and then we'll finish up with Vago. Oh, I think right now, if you're going to build nuclear submarines, you're going to have to decide, well, they have 18 months, this, this consultation period, which nominally I gather is to decide which nuclear submarine do you want to to base your program on the British astute class or the American Virginia class submarine. They are different. They're not the same. There, there are different issues there. Once they decide that, which direction do you want to go? If I'm Australia, I need to start building my infrastructure. I, I want to get a hold of one of these submarines now, the sooner rather than later, not wait for the new submarines to be built. So just like the Russians and Soviets, uh, uh, leased submarines, nuclear submarines to the Indians to get to get expertise at operating these things. The Australians are going to need to do this. They need to put people right now into the American and British programs, nuclear submarine programs, and begin getting expertise and tra training and expertise and experience. And they have to get a sub. Now, whether options could be to sell, you know, the Brit the, the the British astute program. There's still uh, the three ships to come uh, to be delivered um, and maybe one or two of those gets sold to the Australians uh, and they can operate it soon. Maybe the Brits replace them with newer ships uh, that, that they continue to build. Good news for British industry. Maybe we transfer one or two of the Los Angeles class submarines that we currently are operating but are scheduled to decommission very soon Maybe we refuel those and upgrade them and those transfer to the Australians and they get, get, a, get a submarine and 
two or three years that they can operate and start getting experience with that. Uh, but you'll have to wait to see which which design you want to go with. That's sort of, and, and in my mind, that's what is in front of them right now. Bago, you touched on similar things in the um, notebook that you put out this week. What, what else, um, did, what did Chris miss that you would focus on here in the next 18 to 24 months? You, you know you're going to a nuclear-powered Navy. That's the decision you've made. Embed the right people in the right places uh, immediately uh, in order to start that process. Because again, the technical learning and cultural piece of this is, is really the most important. Um, I understand, uh, Chris, what you're saying about a Los Angeles class submarines, uh, class subs. I think the problem with, with that, as you know, is an end of life boat. Uh, tent, you need actually your most experienced submariners running those uh, older uh, subs uh, because of the challenges uh, they, they present. Um, the key is the, the message of this deal is its most powerful element. The second most powerful element to me is whether the United States, Great Britain, uh, three, two, one, whether the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia can come together as three great powers and move fast and smart to field this capability. If this devolves, as I wrote in the piece, to sell American, sell British or buy Australian, it, it's, it, is, it is gonna backfire on everybody at the end of the day, uh, right? China needs to look at this and say, holy crap, when these guys are really motivated, they can act, get their acts together, they can move smart and fast. And I think ultimately that's got to be the key for this and for everybody to also be strategically very focused on delivering this outcome uh, as, as pragmatically as smartly and economically as possible. At no point can this program, uh, and I think I speak for a lot of US Navy leaders, uh, and indeed it should be allied leaders. The most important capability in the Pacific is the United States submarine force. And nothing about this deal can be allowed to derail either the Virginia program or the Columbia program. These are absolutely critical to global stability and ultimately uh, must remain absolute ironclad priorities by the United States. Uh, and, and I think that our allies and partners also understand that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's great to support an ally and partner and get these capabilities into Australia's hands. But at the end of the day, at no point can they disadvantage what the United States Navy is trying to do in order to maintain its capabilities at an absolutely critical time, because it's not just about the Chinese, it's also about the Russians and a number of other threats around the world. Thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Bago, I know you're going to talk about it um, again in the next couple of weeks as we uh, continue to learn more. This will be a topic uh, as uh, as different decision points come and go. We'll, uh, we'll continue to discuss on, on this show, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it right here for, for now. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it and can't wait to uh, be back on again and have you guys on our program. I'm only sorry I didn't get hit with the foghorn, Chris. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Well, for a squawk box this week, it's Mr. Cervello talking about the AUKUS. So, Chris, that conversation about AUKUS and Bago's notebook released earlier in the week got my blood pressure up and my blood boiling. So I'm going to keep my squawk short and simple. As Americans, it is time to do better. Better at policy, better at diplomacy, and better at defense. If we're going to stay ahead of the Chinese technologically, 
successfully avoid conflict and God forbid win a war if it breaks out, we need to be better. Moving from crisis to crisis or tactical decision to tactical decision is not how a superpower acts. And more critically, it's not how a country that wants to stay a superpower acts. The treatment of, of allies and partners over the last four years, followed up by the debacle in Afghanistan last month, and now this week's thumb in the eye to the French, tells me, and more importantly, conveys to the Chinese, that we simply aren't on our game. Suddenly, the smart guys in the White House, at the Pentagon, and on the Hill just don't seem that smart. Competition is about balancing the fulcrum of threats, opportunities, and unforced errors. Right now, our balance is clearly off. Look, this isn't a partisan issue. It's an American issue. And it's one we need to get our arms and head around pretty quickly. Not doing so is simply not an option. All right. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye.